0: Hit that notification button, like, comment, and share. Enjoy. Hello and happy day. How does slowing down sound to you today? Would you like to reduce the noise for just a bit? Are you ready to make a choice and decide to listen? My name is Igor, SF Walker. I'm here to remind people to slow down, to reduce the noise, to walk their lives into a natural flow. Welcome back to the Book of the Week series every week. As I read another amazing title, I share it with the world. Today we look at The Third Wave, a classic study of tomorrow by Alvin Toffler. In this video we look at the classic study of tomorrow. Sweeping across history and future, it reveals the hidden connections amongst today's changes in business, family, life, technology, markets, politics, and personal life. It paints a stunning, comprehensive picture of the 21st century civilization springing up around the globe. Stick around. Till the end I will share with you some tools I do have and use that will help you tremendously in this game of life. Discover a way to find out what actually motivates you, what innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. I will share some tools to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, and relationship management. Old ways of thinking, old formulas, dogmas, and ideologies, no matter how cherished or how useful in the past, no longer fit the facts—the world that is fast emerging from the clash of new values and technologies. New geopolitical relationships, new lifestyles, and modes of communication demand wholly new ideas and analogies, classifications, and concepts. A new civilization is emerging in our lives, and blind men everywhere are trying to suppress it. This new civilization brings with it new family styles changed ways of working, loving, and living, a new economy, new political conflicts, and beyond all this, an altered consciousness as well. Millions are already attuning their lives to the rhythms of tomorrow. Others are terrified of the future and are engaged in a desperate, futile fight into the past and are trying to restore the dying world that gave them birth. The Emergent Civilization writes a new code of behavior for us, and it carries us beyond standardization, synchronization, and centralization—beyond the concentration of energy, money, and power—this new civilization—as it challenges the old will topple bureaucracies, reduce the role of the nation-state, and give rise to semi-autonomous economies in a post-imperialist world. The second wave violently changed the situation instead of a century self-sufficient people and communities. It created for the first time in history a situation in which the overwhelming bulk of all food, goods and services was destined for sale, barter or exchange, it virtually wiped out existent goods produced for one's own consumption, for use by the actual producer and his or her family, and created a civilization in which almost no one, not even a farmer, was self-efficient any longer everyone became almost totally dependent upon food, goods, or services produced by somebody else. In short, industrialism broke the union of production and consumption and split the producer from the consumer. The economy, fused economy of the first wave was transformed into the split economy of the second wave. The cleavage between these two roles, producer and consumer, created at the same time a dual personality, the very same person, who, as a producer, was taught by family, school, and the boss to defer gratification, to be disciplined, controlled, restrained, obedient to be a team player, was simultaneously thought as a consumer to seek instant gratification, to be hedonist rather than calculating, to abandon discipline, and to pursue individualistic pleasure, in short, to be a totally different kind of person. In the first wave societies, most work was performed in the fields or in the home, with the entire household toiling together as an economic unit and with most production destined for consumption within the village or the manor. The second wave, washing across Britain, France, Germany, and other countries, shifted work from field and home to factory and introduced a much higher level of interdependency. Work now demanded collective effort, division of labor, coordination, the integration of many different skills. Its success depended upon the carefully scheduled cooperative behavior of thousands far-flung people, many of whom never laid eyes on one another. The failure of a major steel mill or glass factory to deliver needed supplies to an auto plant could, under certain circumstances, send repercussions throughout the whole industry or even regional economy. The collision of low and high interdependency work produced severe conflict over roles, responsibilities, and rewards. In every second-wave society, consequently, a parallel architecture of elites sprung up. And with local variant, the hidden hierarchy of power was born again and again after every crisis or political upheaval. Names, slogans, party labels, and candidates might change. Revolutions might come and go. New faces might appear behind the big mahogany desk, but the basic architecture of power remained. Each time the rebels recreated under their own flag a similar structure of sub-elites, elites, elites, and super-elites. For this integrational structure and the technicians of power who ruled, it were as necessary to second-wave civilization As factories, fossil fuels, or nuclear families, industrialism, and the full democracy it promised were in fact incompatible. Now, the third wave, already beginning to batter at those industrial structures, opens fantastic opportunities for social and political renovation in the years just ahead. Startling new institutions will replace. Are unworkable, oppressive, and absolute integrational structures. We need to x-ray our absolute political systems to see how it fitted into the frame of second-wave civilization, how it served the industrial order and its elites. Only then can we understand why it is no longer appropriate or tolerable. Drenched in such mechanistic thinking imbued with an almost blind faith into the power and efficiency of machines, the revolutionary founders of second-wave societies, whether capitalists or socialists, not surprisingly invented political institutions that shared many of the characteristics of early industrial machines. Representative government, What we have been thought to call democracy was, in short, an industrial technology for assuring inequality. Representative government was pseudo-representative. In this system, representative government was the political equivalent of the factory. Indeed, it was a factory for the manufacture of collective, integrational decisions. Like most factories, it was managed from above. and Like most factories, it is now increasingly obsolete and a victim of the advancing third wave. If second-wave political structures are increasingly out-of-date, unable to cope with today's complexities, part of the trouble lies in another crucial second-wave institution, the nation-state. Once we understand the industrial need for integration The meaning of the national state becomes clear. Nations are not spiritual unities or mental communities or social souls, nor is a nation a rich heritage of memories or a shared image of the future. What we call the modern nation is a second-wave phenomenon, a single integrated political authority superimposed on or fused with a single integrated economy. It was the wielding of the two—a unified political system and a unified economy—that made the modern nation the roots of great imperialism were, however, more than economic, strategic considerations, religious fervor, idealism, and adventure old played a part as did racism with its implicit assumption of white or European superiority. Many saw imperial conquest as a divine responsibility. Kipling's phrase, the white man's burden, summed up the Europeans' missionary zeal to spread Christianity and civilization—meaning, of course, second-wave civilization. For the colonizers, regarded first-wave civilization, no matter how refined and complexed, as backward and underdeveloped behind the racist attitudes and the religious and other justifications as the British, French, German, Dutch, and others spread around the world, stood a single-heart reality. Second-wave civilizations could not exist in isolation. And it desperately needed the hidden subsidy of cheap resources from the outside. Above all, it needed a single integrated world market through which to siphon those subsidies. Threatening the role of the world as its gas pump, garden, mine, quarry, and cheap labor supply, the second-wave world, brought these changes into the social life of the Earth's non-industrial populations. Cultures that have subsidized for thousands of years in the self-sufficient manner, producing their own food supplies, were sacked willy-nilly into the world trade system and compelled to trade or perish. Suddenly, the living standard of Bolivians and Malayans are tied to the requirements of industrial economies half a planet away, as tin mines and rubber plantations sprung up to feed the voracious industrial maw. It would not be fair to romanticize pre-colonial societies or to blame their poverty for today's non-industrial populations exclusively on imperialism—local corruption, tyranny, ignorance, and xenophobia—all Contributed. There was plenty of misery and oppression to go around long before the Europeans ever arrived. Nevertheless, once torn out of self-sufficiency and compelled to produce for money in exchange, once encouraged or forced to recognize their social structure around mining, for example, or plantation farming, first-wave populations were plunged into economic dependence on a marketplace they could scarcely influence. Often their leaders were bribed, their cultures ridiculed, their language suppressed. Moreover, the colonial powers hammered a deep sense of psychological inferiority into the conquered people that stands even today as an obsolete to economic and social development in the second-wave world. Grand imperialism, however, paid off handsomely. William Woodruff, historian, puts it it was an exploitation of those territories and the growing trade done with them that obtained for the European family wealth on a scale never seen before. Built deep into the very structure of the second wave economy, feeding its ravenous need for resources, imperialism marched across the planet. The grand design should now be clear, second-wave civilization cut up and organized the world into discrete nation-states. Needing the resources of the rest of the world, it drew first-wave societies and remaining primitive peoples of the world into the money system. It created a globally integrated marketplace. But rampant industrialism was more than just an economic, political, or social system. It was also a way of life and a way of thinking, and it produced a second-wave mentality. Now, This mentality stands today as a key obstacle to the creation of a workable third-wave civilization. What few noticed, however, in the heat of this propaganda war was that while each side promoted a different ideology—both were essentially hawking the same super ideology their conclusions their economic programs and political dogmas differed radically but many of their starting assumptions were actually the same like protestant and catholic missionaries clutching different versions of the bible yet both preaching christ marxists and anti-marxists alike capitalists and anti-capitalists americans and russians March forth into Africa, Asia, and Latin America, the non industrial region of the world, blindly bearing the same set of fundamental premises. Both preach the superiority of industrialism to all other civilizations. Both were passionate apostles of industrial reality. Through second wave civilizations, throughout, therefore, three key concepts the war with nature. The importance of evolution and the progress principle provided the ammunition used by the agents of industrialism as they explained and justified it to the world. Beneath these convictions lays still deeper assumption about reality. A set of unspoken beliefs about the very elementals of human experience. Every human being must deal with these elementals. and every civilization describes them in different ways. Every civilization must teach its children to grapple with time and space. It must explain, whether through myth, metaphor, or scientific theory, how nature works, and it must offer some clue to why things do happen as they do. Thus. Second-wave civilization, as it matured, created a whole new image of reality based on its own distinctive assumptions about time and space, matter and cause. Picking up fragments from the past, piecing them together in new ways, applying experiment and empirical tests, it drastically altered the way human beings came to perceive the world around them and how they behave in their daily lives. Second-wave civilization did more than cut time into more precise and standard chunks. It also placed these chunks in a straight line that extended indefinitely back into the past and forward into the future. It made time linear. Indeed, the assumption that time is line-like is so deeply embedded in our thoughts that it is hard for those of us raised in second-wave societies to conceive of any other alternative Yet many pre-industrial societies and some first-wave societies even today see time as a circle, not a straight line. From the Mayans to Buddhists and the Hindus, time was circular and repetitive, history repeating itself endlessly, lives perhaps reliving themselves through reincarnation. The idea that time was like a great circle is found in the Hindu concept of recurrent kalpas, each one 4,000 million years long, each representing but a single Brahma day, beginning with recreation, ending in dissolution, and then beginning again. The notion of circular time is found in Plato and in Aristotle, one of whose students, Edomus, pictured himself living through the same moment again and again. As the cycle repeated itself, synchronization, standardization, linearization. They affected the root assumptions of the civilization and they brought massive changes in the way ordinary people handled time in their lives. But if time itself was transformed, space too had to be repackaged to fit into the new industriality. This remarkable coordination of specialized spaces necessary to get the right people to the right places at the right moment was the exact spatial analog of temporal synchronization. It was in fact it was in effect synchronization in space. For both time and space had to be more carefully structured if industrial societies were to function. Just as people had to provide with more exact and standardized units of time, they also needed more precise and interchangeable units of space. The second wave of change also brought with it a multiplication and sharpening of spatial boundaries. A new image of space arose that corresponded exactly to the new image of time. As punctuality and scheduling set more limits and deadlines in time, more and more boundaries cropped up to set limits in space. The ultimate why, unless a civilization has some explanation for why things happen, even if it is an explanation, nine parts mystery and one part analysis. It cannot program lives effectively. People in carrying out the imperatives of their culture need some reassurance that their behavior will produce results. And this implies some answer to the perennial why. Second wave civilization came up with a theory so powerful that it seemed sufficient to explain everything. It is all there, all implied in that one short triumphant statement. The universe is an assembled reality made of discrete parts put together into an assemblage. Matter can only be understood in terms of motion, i.e. movement through space. Events occur in a linear succession, a parade of events moving down the line of time. Human passions like hatred, selfishness, or love could be compared to physical forces like repulsion, inertia, or attraction. And a wise political state could manipulate them for the public good, just as science could manipulate the physical world for the common good. The greatest thinkers of the second wave were precisely those who most logically and forcefully argued the lawfulness of the universe. Newton seemed to have discovered the laws that programmed the heavens. Darwin had identified laws that programmed social evolution and Freud supposedly laid bare the laws that programmed the psyche. Others—scientists, engineers, social scientists, psychologists—pressed the search for still more or different laws. Technology by itself is not the driving force of history, nor by themselves are ideas or values, nor is the class struggle, nor is history merely a record of ecological shifts, demographic trends, or communications and interventions. Economics alone cannot explain this, or any other historical event. There is no independent variable upon which all other variables depend. There are only interrelated variables boundless in complexity. The greater the divorce of producer from the consumer in time, in space, and in social and in psychic distance, the more the market, in all its astonishing complexity, with all its chain of values, its implicit metaphors and hidden assumptions came to dominate social reality. Industrial man occupied an environment that would have been in many respects unrecognizable to his ancestors. Even the most elementary sensory signals were different. The way into the future is not through reversion to an even more miserable past. Just as there is no single cause that produced second-wave civilizations, there could be no single evaluation. Present a picture of second-wave civilization with its faults included, if it appears. On the one hand to condemn it and on the other hand to approve, it is because simple judgments are misleading. However one chooses to evaluate the fading present, it is vital to understand that the industrial game is over, its energies spent, the force of the second wave diminishing everywhere as the next wave of change begins. Two changes by themselves make the normal continuation of industrial civilization no longer possible. First, we have reached a turning point. In the war against nature, the biosphere will simply no longer tolerate the industrial assault. Second, we can no longer rely indefinitely on non-renewable energy, until now the main subsidy of the industrial development. These facts do not mean the end of technological society or the end of energy, but they do mean that all future technological advance will be shaped by new environmental constraints. One thing is apparent. We are at the end, at least for some decades, of cheap energy. Second-wave civilization has lost one of its two most basic subsidies. This convergence of pressure, the loss of key subsidies, the malfunctioning of the main life-support systems of the society. The breakup of the role structure all produce crisis in that most elemental and fragile of structures—the personality. The collapse of second-wave civilization has created an epidemic of personality crisis. Today we see millions desperately searching for their own shadows, devouring moods, plays, novels, self-help books—no matter how obscure—that promise to help them locate Their missing identities, its victims hurl themselves into group therapy, mysticism, or sexual games. They itch for change, but are terrified by it. They urgently wish to leave their present existence and leap somehow to a new life, to become what they are not. They want to change jobs, spouses, roles, and responsibilities. We can identify the third wave it is this third wave of change that will frame the rest of our lives if we are to smooth the transition between the old dying civilization and a new one that is taking form if we are to maintain a sense of self and the ability to manage our own lives through the intensifying crisis that lies ahead we must be able to recognize and create third wave innovations second wave placed a heavy emphasis on our ability to dismantle problems into their components, and it rewarded us less often for the ability to put the pieces back together again. Most people are culturally more skilled at analysis as analysts than as synthesists. If the auto industry had done what the computer industry had done in the last thirty years, a Rolls-Royce would cost $2.50 and would get two million miles to the gallon. The energy implications of this switchover are staggering. It takes about 1,000 the energy to manufacture optical fiber than it is to dig, smelt, and process an equivalent length of copper wire. The same one ton of coal required to produce 90 miles of copper wire. Can turn out 80,000 miles of fiber. This characteristic of the electronic revolution suggests that one of the most powerful conservation strategies for energy starved high technology economies may well be the rapid substitution of low energy third wave industries for energy wasting second wave industries. Indeed, it is probable that reality will outstrip fiction in the rate of introduction of new and often unexpected applications of electronics. The space industries form a second cluster in the emerging technosphere. Despite delays, five space shuttles may soon be moving cargo and people back and forth between the Earth and the outer space. Upon a weekly schedule, another group of industries only now is beginning to understand what the orbiter may mean to them. Manufacturers and processors whose products range from semiconductors to medicines. Many high-technology materials require delicate, controlled handling, and the force of gravity can be a nuisance. In space, there is no gravity to worry about. No need for containers and no problem with handling poisons or highly reactive substances, and there is a limitless supply of vacuum, as well as super-high and super-low temperatures. As a result, space manufacturing. Moving into the third wave, we must advance step by step from resource-wasteful, pollution-producing system of production, used during the second wave era. Toward a more metabolic system that eliminates waste and pollution by making sure that the output and byproduct of each industry becomes an input for the next. The goal is a system under which no output is produced that is not an input for another production process downstream. Such a system is not only more efficient in a production sense. It also minimizes or, indeed, eliminates damage to the biosphere. All memory can be divided into those that are purely personal or private, and those that are shared or social. Unshared private memories die with the individual. Social memory lives on. Our remarkable ability to file and retrieve shared memories is the secret of our species' evolutionary process. Twice before in history, humankind has revolutionized its social memory. Today, in constructing a new infosphere, we're poised on the brink of another such transformation—the third-wave civilization will have at its disposal more information—more finely organized information—about itself than could have been even imagined even a quarter of a century ago. The shift to a third-wave social memory, however, is more than just quantitative. We are also, as it were, imparting life to our memory. When industrial civilization moved much of social memory outside of the skull, that memory became objectified, embedded in artifacts, books, payroll sheets, newspaper, photographs, and films. What makes the leap to a third wave, infosphere, so historically unprecedented a situation? It makes social memory most extensive and active. And this combination will prove to be propulsive by intervening at the molecular level. By using computer-aided design or other advanced manufacturing tools, we integrate more and more functions into fewer and fewer parts, substituting holes for many discrete components. Vast changes in the technosphere and in the infosphere have converged to change the way we make goods. We are moving rapidly beyond traditional mass production to a sophisticated mix of mass and demassified products. The ultimate goal of this effort is now apparent. Completely customized goods, made with holistic, continuous flow process, increasingly under the direct control of the consumer. In brief, we are revolutionizing the deep structure of production, sending currents of change through every layer of society, However, this transformation, which will affect the student planning a career, a business planning an investment, or a nation planning a development strategy, cannot be understood in isolation. The third-wave revolution in the office is the result of several colliding forces. The need for information had mushroomed so wildly that no army of second-wave clerks, typists, or secretaries—no matter how large or how hard working can possibly cope with in addition the cost of paperwork has climbed so calamitously that a frantic search is underway to control it moreover while the average factory worker in the united states today is supported by an estimated 25000 dollars worth of technology the office worker as one xerox salesman puts it works with a 500 to $1,000 worth of old typewriters and adding machines and is probably amongst the least productive workers in the world. Office productivity has climbed a bare four percent over the past decade, and conditions in other countries are probably even more pronounced. Now Contrast this with the extraordinary decline in the cost of computers as measured by the number of functions performed. It has been estimated that computer output has increased 10,000 times in the past 15 years, and the per-function cost today is down 100,000 times fold. The combination of a rising cost and stagnating productivity on one hand and computer advances on the other make an irresistible combination, the result is likely to be nothing less than a wordquake. The new system will challenge all the old executive turfs, The hierarchies, terms, sexual role divisions, departmental barriers of the past—all of this has raised many fears. What is certain is that both the office and the factory are destined to be revolutionized in the decades ahead. The redefinition is not a matter of choice but a necessary response to five revolutionary changes in the actual conditions of production. Change in the physical environment, in the lineup of social forces, in the role of information, in government organization, and in morality are all pounding the corporation into a new multifaceted, multipurposeful shape. These third-wave rhythms spring from a deep psychological, economic, and technological force. At one level, they arise from the change nature of the population. People today, more affluent and educated than their parents, are faced with more life choices, simply refuse to be massified. The more people differ, in terms of the work they do or the products they consume, the more they demand to be treated as individuals and the more they resist socially-imposed schedules. We are in fact experiencing not merely the breakup of the second wave technosphere, infosphere, or sociosphere, but the crack-up of its psychosphere as well. And there you have it, the third wave, the classic study of tomorrow. Please do help out. It is easy. Simply like this video so more people can enjoy it. Share it too and spread the word. Leave a comment and do share your thoughts. Subscribe to my channel and stay up to date. And The link to this book is in the description below. So Buy it, read, never stop learning, especially learning about yourself and nature. So gift yourself by taking the free human needs test on my website. And Find out what actually motivates you, what innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. And if you feel you are ready to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, and relationship management even further, do check out my Master of Life Awareness program. The links are in the description below. Thank you Love&Respect